Welcome to the great work of your life. Making a commitment to becoming who you are meant to be requires taking risks. We make this commitment without any guarantee that we'll succeed, without any promise that we'll benefit from our efforts. This is what it means to have faith. My name is Rev. Ian White Marr, and this sermon is part of a series called What Would You Rather Be Wrong About? This is a very important question when we consider the choices we make because we're going to make mistakes. But if mistakes are going to be made, I want to wake up in the morning knowing that the choices I made tried to bring more love into the world, even if it didn't work out, even if I was wrong. After you listen, we invite you to go online at community.mvuc.org to share your insights and meet other spiritual seekers like you who are devoted to building a wiser, more nurturing world. You will also find a variety of resources designed to help you lean into your life's purpose. Join us at community.mvuc.org. For the last two weeks, we've explored ideas about risk and calling, uh, and that often appears for most people in in the language of vocation, right? What am I supposed to be doing uh, with my life? And I I love, for those of you who are watching from home, uh, someone came in this week because they were like, I watch from home, but I had to come in and talk about the sermon because I was feeling the calling. You should do that again. We love it. Uh, I love it when that happens. Um, But when we talk about risk and calling, it's often in that that space of what risks do I need to be doing to follow my path, right, in terms of work or whatever. And we've tried it on as well from the perspective of a congregation. As a church, are we living into our calling? Are we taking the risks necessary for us to follow that path? But life isn't all about vocation. It isn't all about you know, what we do. In fact, using what we, we do with our lives as the metric for meaning can lead us into some pretty hollow and dry emotional and spiritual places. I know that, you know, in my life, when, when it becomes all about my work, uh, when that's all I have time for, I'm honestly not a, a pleasant or happy person, right? I need more than that in my life if it's going to have meaning. And I want to be clear, I'm not actually talking about picking up an avocation either, like making room for, for art or, or taking uh, Spanish lessons. You know, they, that helps us stay stimulated and interested in our lives. We, we need things that are fun, but this often still is something that we do, right? The idea of risk and calling that I want to explore today has to do with the sacred. Where do we feel called by the divine? Now, you may be saying, I joined a UU church so I wouldn't have to hear about that. (laughs) Right? I don't want to hear about exploring my spiritual calling. In fact, I have a lot of hard feelings about that language. Right? I hear that. I respect that. Truly. And I think it's precisely one of the reasons we need to talk about it. I hold a position, a perspective really, I guess, that we are not going to think 
our way out of the crises we are facing in this world. The transformation that our world needs, in my opinion, is heart-led, not head-led. Which isn't to say that we don't need creative minds coming up with creative solutions. Creative minds, creative minds that aren't heart-led, however, end up creating the atomic bomb. Very creative act, not heart-led. When I champion the idea of loving the hell out of the world, most of that, the work in that sentence is done by the word loving. And another way that I often phrase is, is that our path out of the crisis happens, or the, the path is when we learn how to fall in love with the world. We must learn how to fall in love with creation. And usually, uh, I don't get very much pushback when I use this language. Until, until I say that falling in love requires a partner. I am not just infatuated with the world, right? I am in love. Because the, I feel the longing that the world has for me. The longing the divine has for me. The longing God has for me. I, the call I feel from the sacred is not about doing something. The call I feel is an invitation to fall in love. Which isn't to say that I don't struggle to feel this calling. I do. I struggle daily to feel like I am loved. There is language There is language in our culture that often feels very hollow. Language that feels trite, overused, insincere, shallow. And for me, it specifically shows up in that phrase, God loves you. Which oddly can feel more like an insult than bomb, more like exclusion than inclusion. And although I've seen it many, many times in many, many places, there is this one moment that is imprinted on my mind. It was a few years ago, I was watching this video of uh, a woman who was aggressively interrupting a gathering of, of Muslims in Texas. And as she was being removed by the police, she shouted over and over again, Jesus loves you. You know the language I'm talking about. You've heard it. But what I perceive as insincerity on the behalf of some religious people is not the reason I struggle to be open to the idea of being desired by God, by the divine, whatever name you want. 
It doesn't help. Their insincerity doesn't help. But putting it all on them is just a convenient excuse not to look into why it is so difficult for me to stand vulnerably before the Spirit. This is not something that's unique to the sacred relationship. In our human relationships, many of us are far more comfortable talking about desiring someone than being desired by someone. Rarely, if ever, do we, we speak on the feelings we experience when we are desired, when we are longed for. Sometimes we talk about what it's like to, to be desired when we don't necessarily return the feelings. It's safer to be desired by someone we're not that interested in. But what is it like to speak about being desired by someone we are? When we, even when we are in a, a relationship and we know that person wants to be with us, it can still be hard to talk about what it, is, what it feels like just to be desired by them, to sit there and to feel wanted by them. It's hard for me, anyway. Brene Brown in her work on vulnerability, came to the conclusion that our capacity for wholeheartedness, her word, for capturing what it means to stand before another unguarded, can never be greater than our willingness, our willingness to be brokenhearted. So let me say that again. Our capacity for wholeheartedness can never be greater than our willingness, the risk we take, that brokenheartedness might happen. Our willingness to be open to the possibility of heartbreak is the high watermark for our capacity to experience joys and connection. If our willingness to risk heartbreak is low, then our capacity to experience joy and connection is also low. If our willingness to risk is high, then our capacity is also high. But it is our willingness to risk that determines what we will feel. Willingness is the measure that determines the amount of joy we can feel. Our ability to feel joy never exceeds our willingness to risk feeling heartbreak. But keeping our, because keeping ourselves guarded and safe from heartbreak simultaneously numbs all of our other capacities. And one of our greatest fears is of being loved and then having that love taken away. It's devastating because it can, not always, but it can reaffirm those voices in our heads that tell us that we are not good enough, that we don't deserve love, that we're always messing things up. And unfortunately, this has also happened culturally to us with the sacred relationship. 
So the primary story for half of the world's people, including those who didn't grow up in a, a church or a temple or a mosque, but who did grow up in a culture influenced by those religions, is of Adam and Eve and God. Remember the story? Of course you do, because you're in one of those cultures, right? Within just a few paragraphs of the opening story's opening pages, Humans have disappointed God so greatly, we are thrown out of paradise, and it is hidden from us henceforth. We made a mistake, and God cannot or will not forgive us, and the rest of the story is about us trying to show that we love God, but we're really not good enough. It's a terrible story to place as the genesis of our history. We angered God we are a disappointment. We are rejected. But the ancestors got it wrong. I love them for many things, but they got this one wrong. The story is just a shadow of our greatest fear. We weren't rejected. That story didn't happen. But we live as if it could. We live, even if we don't believe the story, as true, right? We live, even if we don't believe the story, with a cultural concept of God as being something to please. And if not quite that, it certainly feels foreign to think of God as wanting to please us, right? That's not how the power dynamic works. We're not equals in a nurturing relationship, People follow a spiritual path because we desire some, something, some connection with the design, something, some connection with something larger than ourselves, and we give time and energy and money. All of this has appeared, right, out of nowhere because you made it appear. You've given time and energy and money, and then you, you come and you practice disciplines and adhere to rituals. And, you, and you, I've never seen a, a congre you congregation light as many candles as this place. Like, you love lighting candles more than anyone I've ever met. And it's beautiful. I love it. I love it so much. It is one of the, my favorite parts of the service. We set aside days of the week, days of the year, to be kept sacred, to be devoted to the divine, however we encounter that, whatever you want to call it, whatever it looks like for you. But so often in those exercises, we imagine God as passive, right? perhaps even open and receptive, but standing at a distance waiting for us to do the work. Even the Buddhist in America think this, right? They think of Buddha nature as passive. Buddha nature is not passive. If you have a teacher that tells you that, you need to find another teacher. Buddha nature is not only passive, it is the opposite of passive. Buddha nature is intimate. To the extreme, it is intimate. Every flower is calling out to you. Every cloud, every stream is calling out to you. 
Why? Why, why do we walk around like beggars? Why do we not hear God courting us every morning, whispering in our ears as we rest our heads on the pillow, I love you. Is it too difficult to imagine that this is a two-way love affair, that creation, that this beautiful creation wants us, wants to be with us, wants to love us and adore us, just as we love and adore it? You know, perhaps it's not too hard for us to talk about the desires we feel for the spiritual life, for a spiritual connection, for awakening. But how is the divine calling out to you? How is it desiring you? Now, I understand that, that it may seem like a very strange question. And some of you may be like, nowhere. I don't feel it anywhere. Why would I feel that? How would I feel that? I don't even know what that means. I get it. It's not part of our culture to be trained to learn how to listen, to feel, to experience a sense of longing coming from creation. It's not part of our culture to feel desirable to God. In fact, it's the opposite. There is too much language in our culture about our pollution as sinners. Who could be desirable? You dirty, dirty sinners. Who who would desire that? You know, it's a story we tell. Even if we don't believe that theology, it is the holding environment that we live in, and there has been this story that was handed down to us, one that was created by people who lived insecure lives and feared rejection, and while we may have come to question the veracity of the story, the facts of it, we still, as a culture, live with this way that we haven't questioned the reckoning that that story has created. The reckoning of a people walking around as if we're polluted. And there's a reckoning to that. A reckoning of people who are like, I'm bad, culture-wide. Which is why I think sometimes we, we fetishize other religious traditions. Right, that don't have the rejection story as, as our genesis. We fetishize uh, native traditions about uh, living in union, not because they're wrong, but because that's what we want. That's what we long for. And because there is something that is longing for you. There is a sacred call moving through our bodies, asking us to fall in love. But as a culture, we are not very willing to risk, to stand vulnerably before the divine and say, you know, this is me. I love you. And I really hope that you love me. But I'm willing to risk anyway. There was a previous heartbreak The world dropped out from beneath our feet, and it's so painful that we're not really willing to risk having our hearts broken again. 
Better to place something in between our relationship so the hurt won't be so bad next time. A wall that numbs the pain. But that wall also numbs the joy. It, it numbs the connection between us and the sacred. And I've talked about the, this idea of the, of the sacred heartbreak in other UU settings before. And I've, you know, sometimes I've gotten myself in a little bit of trouble with what I'm about to say at the risk of losing any good favor I may have <laughs> earned here. I think there is a particular affliction for the people of our faith to work through. Unitarian Universalists, in my opinion, are incredibly earnest and tender people. We want, we, we try so hard we really want to be good, truly, better than right, to be good. And at times, we, we, we go to such extremes, there's almost a painful and frustration, frustrating dedication to like finding the right language and the right behavior because inclusion is such an important value to us. And I think that some of this drive for inclusion is born out of the experience of exclusion. Right? We are not unique as a people who value justice. There are lots of other faiths that value justice. But we are unique in that we are almost entirely made up of people who have converted from another faith. Something like 90%, 91% of UUs were originally something other than Unitarian Universalist. And we throw around words like recovering or exile. And these words tell a story of an earlier heartbreak, an isolation, a loneliness, and we often root ourselves in the realm from the head up, in part, I believe, as a defense, as a wall that says, you will never lie to me again. You will never make a fool of me again. What I had was precious, and you broke it, and it's never going to happen again. But our ability to feel joy, to feel connection, never exceeds our willingness to feel heartbreak. If we weren't in exile, if we weren't recovering, if we weren't dragging around the corpse of some dead God that no longer serves us just so we can kick him and say, I don't believe in you anymore, who would we be? You don't exist. To whom would our passions run? You know, there was once a woman I deeply loved, deeply loved, and she didn't love me back. Not in the same way. And it broke my heart. And it took me years before I could really love another person. But when I could, my life blossomed. Another element of the heartbreak that exists in the spiritual life of UUs often reveals itself in the overvaluation of the individual. 
The retreat into individualism is a form of protection. It is a form of saying, you can't tell me that my beliefs are wrong. And on so many levels, I agree with this stance. The list of violations done in the name of religion is it's long. And the coercive power of those who walked around saying, this is what we believe, and those who don't believe it are apostates and traitors, has hurt, murdered even, countless people and cultures. The right to believe as you choose has been hard fought. And it has also allowed so many of us to stop searching to remove our assumptions from scrutiny. And in the overvaluation of the individual, we are no longer forced to, to wrestle with inconvenient truths or problematic ideas that honestly might conflict with our personal beliefs because it's so easy to retreat behind the walls of, ah, that's my personal spirituality. You know, we have this curriculum called Build Your Own Theology, which... While I really believe in tapping into what is unique for your call, there is a shadow in that. It is a hagiography of the isolated individual. I build my own theology. It is encapsulated and unique, and it can be suffocating. But I believe that many of us are hungry for this love affair. We feel the call even if we're not sure if it's safe to step out into the unknown because we might be spiritually hurt again. Or <laughs> but we're earnest, tender people who want to love this world with our whole bodies. And sometimes it appears to me anyway that that's what we want even if we're afraid to admit it. You cannot feel creation's desire for you if you cannot. You know, perhaps there is a story we are living with, one that, that safeguards you from rejection. What is that story? You know, the great insight of mysticism is that God moves from within us, not from without. So the feelings we have that tug at our heart, I believe, come from the sacred. The loneliness that you feel for the divine is the divine's loneliness for you. The desire you feel for the spiritual encounter is God's desire for you. If you can believe it. If you can see yourself as desirable. Whenever I hear someone say things like, humans are a virus on this planet and the earth will be so much better when we're gone, what I hear is a lonely person who feels rejected. We are from the earth. How could we be rejected? Let's stop acting like it. You are wanted. And the more we become willing to stand in our vulnerability, setting aside the stories that have built walls around our tender spirit to keep them safe, the more we are able to risk being hurt, then the deeper we can go into the relationship with the divine. God is not waiting for us passively at the distance. The divine, the sacred, is courting us here in this moment. Right here. Right here.
What would it be like to act in such a way as to attract your beloved? I say this not solely for the the sacred love affair, although I do think that that would be enough, but because what we are doing is not working. And we know this because the world is crying out for relief. We say there is a climate crisis, a refugee crisis, an income inequality crisis, a war crisis. And we say if only we empower the right scientists or the right diplomats, then we can rescue the world from these problems. But these are not the problems that we face. The problems we face are greed, selfishness, isolation, indifference, heartbreak. And it's not you, the scientist, or you, the diplomat. I know that's hard for some of you to hear. Not you, the diplomat but you, the lover, who can solve these problems. We need a cultural and spiritual transformation in our world if we are going to be rescued, but your capacity to love is equal to your willingness to be open to being loved. So where do you feel the divine desiring you, loving you? This is not to satisfy your ego. It is the first step in a revolution, the first step in transformation. Go forth as apostles of the sacred love story. There is a heartbreaking breach between how horrible things can be and the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, as Charles Eisenstein says. But we cannot walk the beam stretching across this breach if we only kind of, sort of want it. We only kind of sort of want to be lovers. We are not beggars pleading before an indifferent or passive or judging Lord. That story is not true. We are called. When you walk out here, there's no coffee hour, so go walk out here. Stand before a tree. See if you can hear the call. Stand in the sun. See if you can hear the call. You are wanted. You can probably feel the longing for a deeper connection within you. This is creation longing for you. Let's fall hopelessly and deeply in love with this world. Amen. Thank you for listening. This sermon is part of the series called What Would You Rather Be Wrong About? where we lean into the need to embrace uncertainty and risk because we are not outcome-oriented. We do this work without any guarantee of success. In our free online community, we've taken short clips to highlight passages from the sermon to help you explore and reflect on what these ideas might mean for you. You can join the conversation at community.mvuc.org. It's a safe place to connect and reflect with other spiritual seekers like you. It's free to join, and you will also find a variety of other resources designed to help you cultivate the great work of your life. Again, that's community.mvuc.org. You may have heard other podcasts asking for a rating and review, which we certainly would welcome. It does help people find us. But we believe the best way to reach more people is through word of mouth. If what you heard resonated with your life and your values, 
please forward this episode to a friend you think might be helped by the message. We're all in this together, and it's up to each of us to stay connected in this increasingly isolated world. It's a common misconception that awakening or salvation is an individual affair. The truth is, we are interwoven. Physically and spiritually, my joy and safety is connected to your joy and safety. It is only by coming together that we will awaken and love the hell out of this world. If you're local to Alexandria, Virginia, or if you're just visiting the area, please join us on Sunday. We offer so much more than just a sermon. It's a full-body experience. You can find more information on how to visit the Mount Vernon Unitarian Church at mvuc.org. Again, thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.